What has happened in the story of Jacob is that Jacob has conspired with his mother, if you remember, to deceive his way into stealing what is normally the blessing of the firstborn from Isaac. So he dressed up like Esau, hairy and manly, if you remember. He came in, deceived Isaac into uh, receiving the blessing of the firstborn. After that, Esau promised to kill Jacob for stealing the blessing. And that's when his mother and his father sent him off to go find a wife from Rebekah's family, from the family of Nahor. On his way to find a wife from the family of Nahor, the Lord appears to Jacob in a dream and promises him the following. It says, The Lord said, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised with you. So the Lord is with Jacob actively, fulfilling his promises to Abraham in his grandson Jacob. Now in this passage, remember I said last week your sin will find you out? That is exactly what happens to Jacob in this passage. Now, I, I believe that the Lord does not condone ever sin. Right? He does not tempt with, nor is he tempted by sin. But I do think he, he uses it in his plan. He knows that it will happen, and he uses it within his good plan to bring about his ultimate purposes. And again, I love that phrase, I think it's from Piper, that God uses evil, he folds it into his causality. And I think that's what you have with Jacob here. So though, although the Lord does not condone deception, and the kind of deception that Jacob uh, deceived his father with, nevertheless, he used this to bring about his ultimate purposes for the family of Abraham. But that God does not condone sin, I think is going to be clear in this passage. In the passage that I'm going to read today, that we're going to discuss, chapter 29, um, Jacob arrives at a well near Haran and meets his wife. Now, he doesn't know that this will be her wife when he meets her, but he meets Rachel, his wife. He works for Rachel for seven years as a sort of dowry payment to earn her as a, um, as a wife. After his serving her for seven years, he's deceived by Laban on the wedding night and copulates with Leah unbeknownst to him and then works another seven years for Rachel. If I, could, if I could give you a big picture of what I'd like you to take away from this passage, it's that God is with his people, guiding his people, providing his people, providing for his people, teaching his people, and disciplining his people for their good 
in their day-to-day life. If you can walk away with, with a confidence in that, and if you could live into that reality, choose to live into that reality day by day, it will change your life. It will change your life. The psalmist says, I keep the Lord always before me. This is keeping the Lord always before us. So I want you to not look at life as merely a set of coincidences or a string of circumstances. But as a child of God, look at life the way Christ told you to look at life. As a child of God, for whom God is providing And therefore, you don't need to worry about what you will eat, drink, or wear. But you can seek first eternal things, knowing that all these other things will be added. And know that within God's provision for you, there is discipline. And the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. I discipline my children because I love them and I want the best for them. And... If we didn't, as parents, discipline our children, they would turn into monsters because they would, they would think that they're, the, the emotions that arise out from them and the actions that they take are welling. This is, if they're not curtailed, they will blossom within a person and take on an ugly form in life and lead someone to certain death. So the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So I'm going to walk through this text with you today, chapter 29, under uh, three scenes. First scene, I'm just titling The Arrival, where Jacob arrives at the right place at the right time. Verse 1, this is after Jacob had met the Lord, it says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. A stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, uh, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the, from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son. 
And she ran and told her father. Now, again, it's very important, stopping there, to understand that God is with Jacob. Not in the sense of omnipresence, not in the sense that he's here with us in some vague and undefined sense. Remember, God is with his people in a peculiar and unique way that he is not with other people in an omnipresent way. Um, he is present and active with his people. He is providentially guiding them to places and to people and into discipline and ultimately into a closer walk with God himself. And again, I want to point you to verse 15 of chapter 28 where God specifically says, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. So that's very important to understand that God is with Jacob. That is why he arrives at the right place at the right time. He's gone to Padan Aram to find a wife. He arrives at a well. He meets some shepherds and has this conversation about why they're there so early in the morning. It's not time to, to water. And, and so he meets these shepherds. But as, as this conversation is happening, his soon-to-be wife, Rachel, comes on the scene. And, she's, and he sees her. And as soon as he sees her, he removes the stone from the mouth of the well in verse 10. He came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, every time someone talks about this passage, they wonder what it is with the stone, why this is made so much, why so much of a deal is made about the stone over the, the mouth of the well. I, I, think, I think you could go a lot of places. What I want to say here is that Jacob is wanting to specifically bless Laban's flock and Rachel himself. And so he does not wait for the other shepherds to remove this stone, but does it himself. Why couldn't the other shepherds do it themselves? Perhaps they were young shepherds, maybe 10, 12 years old. They couldn't, didn't have strength to move this stone. Some people think it was an amazing feat of strength by Jacob. The passage doesn't say that. It just said he removed the stone. Um, so, I think what we can say is that Jacob removed the stone because he wanted to bless Rachel and Laban's flock, being their kinsmen. And after he does this, he kisses and cries over Rachel and told her that he was her father's kinsman. All of this happens, you know, within the span of, I suppose, 15 minutes. He arrives at a well exactly where Rachel, his wife, would be. He would be it would be his future wife in just a few verses. And they arrive at almost the same exact time. What I want to draw out here, and there's a lot we could say, but the main thing I want to draw out is that this is not a coincidence in Jacob's life. But God is directing Jacob, and God's plan is carried out in the, life, in the life of Jacob. This passage 
might cause you some deja vu. If you remember chapter 24, Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, if you remember, and the servant goes to a well. And Rebecca, Isaac's soon-to-be wife, meets him at the well and waters the servant's flocks. So this is very deja vu-ish. And it shows that God is providing for Jacob in the same way I think that he's providing for Isaac. He's, maybe it's the same exact well. But he's providing, for, he's providing for Jacob in the same exact way he's provided for his father. And he's providing a wife in the same way he's provided for his father. So please understand that the people of God are being guided by God himself. What is happening in the line of Abraham, those events that take place in their life, they're not just a set of fortunate coincidences. They're the outworking of God's plan in their life. Because God's presence is with them. Now for Christians today, this this does apply to us directly because we have the presence of God with us. The author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How freeing it would be, if you haven't already, to step into that reality. Where you can just, you are freed to be faithful and you abandon results to God. That is such a key for the Christian life. And it frees us from striving here for, for the love of money or anxious self-promotion, trying to, to be lifted up in the eyes of your chosen group. But you are free to serve God, to love Him, and abandon results for Him because He is with you and He is working with you in your life. I think this is, this is the, the key to a closer walk with God. First, it's intentionally acknowledging that God is with you. The intentional awareness of God's presence in your life. In Psalm 23, that is a biography of a man who has acknowledged the presence of God in his life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not be in need he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil because he is with me. His rod and his staff comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Then his conclusion is that goodness and mercy 
shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a man who believes that God is with him in life. In the good and in the bad, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This, pa- this week, we, have, we know somebody who has just walked through the valley of the shadow of death, Barbara Wimmer. I was looking at her Bible this week, and I was looking at her Bible in 1 Peter, and every time Peter mentions the word hope, she circled it. Hope. You know what biblical hope is? Well, anxiety. You could be anxious about death. And I think that's the natural thing that would come out of a man or a woman who is facing death. But the supernatural thing is hope. As I've said before, anxiety means that you're anticipating dread. Hope means that you're anticipating joy. So hope is the anticipation of joy because God is with you. And hope, Paul says, does not make us ashamed. It will not put us to shame because the love of God has been spread abroad in our hearts. Hope will not make you ashamed. So I would like you, I want to encourage you today to live a life with in conscience, conscious awareness of God's presence. This is something, this is a spiritual internal discipline. When you wake up tomorrow morning, acknowledge that God is with you. Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? So either that's true or not. If you have the Holy Spirit... God is with you in a very profound way. He is with you and in you, uniting you to Jesus Christ. So there's a withness that we need to understand. Now, side note, as you you appreciate the imminence of God in your life, do not lose his transcendence. Understand that he is high and lifted up, that he is mighty and exalted that he clothes himself in darkness and light, that he is awful and dreadful, that he is great and powerful. Don't lose your appreciation for the awful immensity and power of God who breathes universes into the world with, with the vapor of his breath. So when we talk about imminence, we can only appreciate the imminence of God because of the majesty of God. Amen? All right. Um, Live with a conscious awareness that God is with you, guiding your life. I think John Calvin, I like John Calvin's uh, note here. He says, Therefore, whenever we may wander in uncertainty through intricate windings, we must contemplate with eyes of faith the secret providence of God who governs us and our affairs and leads us to unexpected results. I like that. View life 
through the eyes of faith and understand the events and circumstances of your life as outworkings of the secret providence of God. That's how, that's how we ought to live, and that's how to develop a closer relationship with God. Don't just see things as coincidences. Again, I, I've said this with answered prayer. Sometimes, when I was younger, I would pray for something small. God gave it to me, and then my, my initial reaction was, oh, well, that's a coincidence. But why not just see that as an answered prayer, <laughs> right? I think, I, think, I think we have to train ourselves, we have to train our bodies and our minds out of atheism, a functional atheism, and live as if God really meant what he said. There's a functional atheism in us that needs to be exercised over the course of time. Now, scene number two is when he meets Laban. And he strikes a deal with Laban to marry his daughter, Rachel. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Jacob said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him one month. Then Jacob, then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, first of all, I want to just stop there for a minute. Do you notice that the tone change between verses 13, 14, and then 15? The, the, the relationship changes there. So I think when you meet Laban, brewing under this, this friendly meeting with Laban, Laban's actually showing his character. He's a cunning man. He is a very deceptive man, and he's very good at it. And he is going to exploit Jacob for all he is worth. In verse 13... They're kissing each other and staying at, you know, Jacob's staying at Laban's house. And he says, and Laban says, oh, you're my bone and my flesh. And then after a month, this is almost jarring. In verse 15, from out of nowhere, Jacob talks about, or Laban talks about wages. serving and wages. That is very, that's a very interesting turn of events from being my kinsman and my flesh and my bone to being a servant for whom I, whom I will pay wages to. Isn't it not? Is it not? I find that very jarring. Um, I think that betrays, that's, that's a hint right there at Laban's character. He's someone that's going to exploit Jacob. In verse 16, we have a parenthetical comment. So Laban has just talked about wages. What shall Jacob's wages be? Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. 
Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel's were beautiful in form and appearance. Now, what does it mean that Leah's eyes are weak? Weak could be translated as soft in this passage. And so the meaning could be something like, while Leah's eyes were nice and soft, she had, she had, she had good, soft, lovely eyes. Nevertheless, Rachel was beautiful in her body and her appearance. That's possible. So it could be a positive description of Leah's eyes, or more probably, it's a euphemism for being unattractive. Leah's eyes were weak, meaning she's, she's not attractive, but compared to Rachel, Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. And so it says that Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And uh, Laban said, it is better that I give, uh, give her to you than anyone else. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Aww. <laughs> that's, now, that, but that is, honestly, that's one of the few times you see romance in the Old Testament. In the Bible, um, marriage was not for romance during these times. It was it was um, it was for uh, um, strength in in the family. It was usually set up by the father and mother, but very rarely do we see romance. Except for here, we see romance. Um, so Jacob is agreeing to serve Laban for seven years. That's a long time for Rachel's hand. Now, why is he agreeing to this? Some commentators say that it's because he's, instead of paying a dowry, he didn't come with any money. And a dowry was usually paid to the father. Instead of paying a dowry, he says, well, I can't pay you money, but I can work for you. That's possible. And so he's going to work seven years to pay the bride price for Rachel. Last scene is the deception. Verse 21. Um, then Laban said, or Jacob said to Laban, after these seven years, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Which always cracks me up because I've never, <laughs> I don't think that's the best way to approach the father of the woman you want to bear, marry. Give me my wife that I might go into her. It's like, <laughs> um, but Laban thinks this is a conventional way to speak, I guess. And so he gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Now, a typical marriage ceremony during this time lasted a week. They, they were party animals. And... Um, the first day of the wedding ended with the consummation of the marriage. The first, the night, that is, ended with the consummation of the marriage. And so the woman who would be veiled the entire party would go into the bedchamber with the man and consummate the marriage. Now, mind you, they were not Baptists. 
So there was a lot of drinking, and there was a lot of partying, and so I suspect that that um, Jacob was a little tipsy during this time. And Jacob is uh, deceived on his wedding night. Verse 23. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So he dressed Leah up in the veil, the ugly sister, in a veil, brought her in, and Jacob, and perhaps Leah too, drunk, go into the tent, and Jacob wakes up in the morning, and I love that line in verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So Jacob wakes up from his, his drunkenness, hungover perhaps, and said, why have you deceived me to do this? This is a man robbed of justice, right? I mean, he has served for seven years. He did... I think he deserves his wife now. And he is rightfully angry at the, at the deception that Laban certainly hatched in his own mind and Leah participated in. Right? Well, verse 26 is the climax of this entire episode. Now listen very carefully and use your what has happened previously to discern what is going on here. Now Jacob said, did I not serve you with Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Verse 26, Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Do you see what's happened here? Is this if this were a movie, this would be where Jacob has a flashback, like, and he flashes back to what happened a few days ago or weeks ago when he went in and deceived Isaac for the blessing of the firstborn. That is exactly what's happening. So that what has happened to Jacob is a mirror image of the deception that him and his mother pulled off on Isaac to steal the blessing of the firstborn from Esau. So this is the rebuke of God in the mouth of Laban. And God has used pagans before to rebuke God's people. If you remember Pharaoh in chapter 12, Pharaoh says to Abraham, what have you done? Which are the very same words that um, God had spoken to Eve. What have you done? So, God has often used, is often using the rebuke of pagans 
to to rebuke the people of God. So this is, I, I just find this an am, amazing that Jacob had deceived his father into giving the blessing of the firstborn to him, the younger. And that deception is then mirrored and given back to Jacob when Laban and Leah contrive to deceive Jacob on his wedding night. Again, I want to say that God incorporated Isaac's or the deception of Jacob into his plan. This is part of God's plan, but he did not condone Jacob's actions. And I think that's evident in what happens to Jacob here. Your sin will find you out. He who digs a ditch will fall into it, the Proverbs say. And so God is is bringing Jacob's own actions back upon his head. Now, to step back as Christians and think about this, I want you to understand that in Christ there is no condemnation. Right? Romans 8.1. Um, in Christ there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Bam! Take it to the books. That, that, is, that is your promise. If you're in Christ, no condemnation. But there is discipline. And there needs to be, I think the church, the evangelical church suffers from a lack of distinction theologically. A lack of making finer distinctions that would help us understand things better. Like I always like to make the distinction between effort and earning. That's really important. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Right? Effort is an action. Earning is an attitude. That's, that was the great line from Dallas Willard. And the fact that you are, that grace is not opposed to effort, but earning I think is exemplified in Philippians, I think, 2, 8, and 9, where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not earning, but effort. Um, and this distinction here is not condemnation, but discipline. So anytime something negative happens in someone's life, I think some Christians feel like, well, that's Satan, or that's the devil coming after me. Well, it could be. It very well could be. This is where discernment and, and prayerful, thoughtful reflection on Scripture is important. I don't know if something that I don't like when it's happening to me is from the devil. Maybe it's from God. Maybe it's from God. Maybe I'm being disciplined for my actions. Sins of omission or sins of commission. But Proverbs uh, eleven twelve teaches us, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves the one he loves as a father, the son in whom he takes delight. So do you see that? That the Lord, is not, the Lord does not condemn sons and daughters. You are a son or you are a daughter of the Most High. 
but it's because you are sons and daughters of the Most High that you will endure discipline throughout your life. And discipline, God's discipline, is not just corrective. It's reformative. It reforms you. It trains you. It makes you more mature. It prepares you for the next time and the next stage of life. That's why when you have to repent, tell someone you did something you wish you didn't do, or be open and honest about something from the heart, because you know that's what God would have you do, and that's what he's pressing upon your conscience. It seems unpleasant for that time, but once you've gone through it and come out the other side, you are now a stronger person. You, you, you've now gained a maturity that you would not have gained if you had not had done that thing. Parents discipline children so that they grow to maturity. Right? An undisciplined child will become a monster. But a child who is properly disciplined in a loving way will grow up into maturity. Hebrews 12, 9 and 11 says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For our fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Mm. Do you want to share God's holiness? Be dis come under discipline. Humbly admit your wrongs. Move forward with faith and confidence in God. And it will yield, here's the promise, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline is a, is a tutor in your life. It's not a whip. It's a tutor in your life. So be trained by the discipline of God. Repent. Admit your fault. Endure the discipline. Be trained by it. And it will yield the fruit of righteousness in your life. Not everything that you endure is going to be discipline. I do believe that there are spiritual forces in heavenly places that would like to destroy your life. You need to discern. And in my own experience, when I am going through a result of my own failures, I know it. It's, it's, it's something I try to avoid in my mind very often, but eventually, if I'm being honest with myself, I know it's the Lord's discipline. So you'll, you, again, I don't want to say that everything the Lord does to you is discipline, but some things He does to you, and some things you go through are discipline. How will you go through them? In this passage, then, I think we've seen Jacob, first of all, as a child of God, God is with him. 
guiding his steps, giving him, his, giving him a wife. But God, being a good father, does not allow Jacob to get away with things. He has a great plan for Jacob. And therefore, he disciplines him and brings his own folly upon his head, thus preparing him for the future where he will actually strive with God and be called Israel. And God is preparing us for these same types of things in our life. Let's close in a word of prayer.